I'm your host, Lillian Yang. And I'm your host, Fakri Shafai. And you are listening to Food Nonfiction, the incredible true stories behind food. Hey, food buffs. This episode is all about vending machines. You have all probably used a vending machine before. You put in your coin or a bill or a credit card, select your item, and out it comes. It's the quickest purchase you can make. This convenient system for buying things started out with very crude machinery and lots of hurdles to overcome. This is the story of that journey. That's why we named this episode Vending Machines Past to Present. The earliest reference to a vending machine is from Egypt. In a book called Nematica that dates back to the first century AD, there is a detailed description and a picture of a device which dispensed water when you put in a five drachma coin. This was invented for dispensing equal amounts of sacrificial water at Egyptian temples. This was a source of money for the Egyptian temples, and it also made sure everyone got the same amount of holy water. Here is how it worked. Imagine a teeter-totter. When a coin was dropped into the holy water dispenser, it fell on one end of the teeter-totter. This caused the other end to lift up, also opening a little exit which let the holy water out. As the teeter-totter moved down on the side with the coin, the coin eventually fell off. And once the coin fell, the teeter-totter reset and the water exit closed. Unfortunately, one of these devices has never been found. So we don't know if this was just a design concept or if it was actually used. In fact, we're not even sure who invented it. It's possible that the author of the book, Hero of Alexandria, invented it. It's also possible that one of his predecessors, Ctesivios, invented it. After that, it wasn't until the 1600s that more vending machines were introduced to the world. Around 1615, you could get tobacco from coin-operated devices in English taverns and inns. Here's how the tobacco device worked. When you put your coin in, it pressed a trigger that popped open the lid. These were very crude vending machines. After each use, you had to manually close it again. And you also had to watch to make sure people didn't take everything in the box, because when the lid was open, you could just take all the tobacco. The next version of vending machines also appeared in England. We like to tell our stories in chronological order, so now we're in the 1800s. Richard Carlyle was a publisher and a bookseller who believed in freedom of the press. He had been arrested for selling political texts. So in 1822, he created a book vending machine, hoping to avoid more legal charges that way, because it would be the machine selling the books, not him. Anyhow, the courts didn't agree with that logic, and he was still held responsible for selling the books. Moving on to 1857, we get the first patent for a fully automatic vending machine. It was called a self-acting machine for the delivery of postage and receipt stamps. That didn't take off either. Can you imagine with a name like that? <laughs> Super long name. They need to come up with an acronym or something. <laughs> it would be S. Yes, you're right. <laughs> Finally, in England, 1883, we get a more successful vending machine. That year, Percival Everett got his patent for a vending machine which dispensed postcards. With that vending machine, people could finally buy postcards when shops were closed. In 1888, 
the Adams Gum Company installed vending machines on the platforms of rail stations in New York. These vending machines were designed to sell tutti frutti gum and inspired the creation of more vending machines that sold small snacks like candy and peanuts. Gum was a great product to sell because it was cheap, it lasted a long time, and they came with no health concerns. Gum can also take a good amount of abuse. You can drop it without breaking it, and it doesn't melt when it gets hot outside the way a chocolate bar would. So quality control was not an issue. In 1911, many of the big players in the vending machine business started to merge together to become the Auto Sales Gum and Chocolate Company. This company combined the major players in the chewing gum business, together holding 250 names and brands. And the major players in the vending machine making business, together controlling many patents and wide distribution. The idea behind the Auto Sales Gum and Chocolate Company was that their vending machines would sell small versions of the goods they wanted people to buy over the counter. The vending machines were a way to market the goods. But vending machines still had a long way to go before becoming the $43 billion industry it is today. The vending machine industry has been plagued with bad behavior since the start. People abuse vending machines. People hit machines when they don't get their purchased item. They plug the coin slots with random objects for fun. Drunk people pour beer into the coin slot, and people also use other objects to mimic coins. These mimics are called slugs. Slugs were a really big problem, especially in the early 1900s when vending machines were not great at identifying fake coins. In fact, kind of hilariously, vending machines got a lot of slugs when they were placed near factories where objects from the factory could be put into the coin slot. For example. Having a vending machine near a button factory is not a good idea because people put buttons into the coin slot. Also, factories have mechanics, and mechanics found it easy to make slugs. In the 1940s, vending machines improved their system for checking for slugs. Coins went through multiple tests before they were accepted by the machines. First, the vending machines would test the size of the coin. Then, they tested for iron and steel with a magnet. If the coin was magnetic, it would be returned. Then the coin was tested for the proper weight. Finally, the coin was tested with metallurgy to check for the right composition. For example, foreign currency was sometimes used, and this test would uncover that. Real coins passed these four tests within a fraction of a second. By the way, if you want to know more about how vending machines detect fake coins and bills today, Wonderopolis.org has an article on it. We'll post it on our Facebook page. While you're there, please like the page. So now we're in the post World War II period, and this is when vending machines really start to make an impact. We gave Tim Sanford a call to tell us the story of what happens next. He is the extremely knowledgeable editor in chief of Vending Times. Thank you for calling Vending Times. Yeah, Vending Times. Good afternoon. Okay, I am、uh, Tim Sanford, and I am editor of Vending Times Magazine. I have been with this magazine since 1967. I think, from a practical standpoint, modern vending—that vending as we know it today—really starts in the years, the decade after World War II. I mean, yeah, there were lots of neat things going on in the ancient world and in the 18th century and 1886 and so forth, but they don't. 
really relate <laughs> much to anything that's happening now. What happened was that during World War II, many large new factories were built, and they were built away from downtown urban areas, so people had to go out to them. But in the previous world, people who wanted to go out to lunch would walk across the street to, uh, you know, somebody's bar and grill and get a hamburger. All of a sudden, you were out in the middle of nowhere, and you had 1,500 people on an assembly line a quarter of a mile long, and how are you going to feed them? The union contract says we've got to give people two coffee breaks during a work day, and if they're on the third shift, the first one is like 11 o'clock at night, and the second one is like 3 o'clock in the morning. How do we do that? You have somebody standing there with his thumb in his ear in a coffee pot waiting for somebody to come along. No. A vending machine is a better way to go. Both hot and cold vending machines were invented in the 1950s, and together, these machines could offer a variety of foods and beverages. And all of a sudden, a vending operator could go into the factory with a proposition that I will take care of all of this for you all to your food service, your beverage service, in return for which I will even pay you a modest commission on the sales. I'll be a concessionaire. So with a proposition like that, they couldn't lose. And immediately, vending by 1962 had really come to dominate the in-plant feeding business. So this was a great achievement for vending machines. With heating and cooling systems, vending machines were able to move past just selling snacks. They could now expand into selling meals. Interestingly enough, when vending machines started selling meals, that helped promote the use of microwave ovens. A lot of people don't realize it, but the vending industry was really responsible for a lot of things that it doesn't get any credit for. And one of them was putting a microwave oven in your kitchen. Because when I joined Vending Times, the microwave oven was a weird luxury good. And they cost, you know, like a $1,000. And said, what, what do I need that for? The only people who needed them were people who had vending machines that sold food. Vending machines that sold food were accompanied by microwave ovens. So you would buy your food, take off the wrapper, and then heat it up in the microwave oven. You were even allowed to bring food from home and use the microwave oven for free. So people became more familiar with microwave ovens through using them alongside vending machines, and people started to buy them for home. And I knew a guy at Litton Industries told me, I think in 1971, that as soon as 1% of Americans had microwave ovens in their kitchen, a new food category would be developed to accommodate them, and that would, would spur the proliferation of microwave ovens, and indeed it did. And that is where you have your frozen burritos and all that stuff, all the things you can buy in the supermarket now that come pre-wrapped in single servings were really designed for, originally, their ancestors were designed for vending machines. But throughout vending machine history, and even today, people have been suspicious of vending machine food. You know, I was too until now. <laughs> you look at a sandwich in a vending machine and you wonder how long it's been sitting there. For whatever reason, you just assume that the vending machine sandwich is not as good as the same one you can find in the cafeteria. Actually, the vending machine sandwich is probably in better condition than the refrigerated cafeteria sandwich. This is because people are constantly opening and closing the refrigerator door in the cafeteria, maybe even picking up the sandwich and putting it back. All the while, they're letting in warm air. At the same time, the vending machine sandwich is sitting untouched in a temperature-regulated cooling system that is being monitored real-time 
from an operator's office. The vending industry knows there's a bias against vending machine food, so they've made efforts to show what's going on inside the machines. Vending machines that sell snacks have a big glass front, and vending machines that brew coffee have the little window where you can see the beans and the grinding. People don't know what's going on inside the machine, and now they have a little better idea because these bean grinding machines have a window, and you see the beans going down, and you hear the grinder going. So you have some, you can form some image of what's going on in there. But before that, it was anybody's guess, and the good operators, and again, there are a lot of funny stories about this, which I will not tell you. But the good operators realized that the best thing to do any time they had a route driver out in the field filling the machine, or any time they had a technician out there servicing the machine, or any time they went out themselves to do something, they would open the door of the coffee machine, and they would, you know, horse around inside. And when people came and and you know stood around watching, as people will do, they would look around and say, "Hey, you want a cup of coffee?" And everyone said, "Wow, look at that!" It's actually brewing at one cup at a time. He says, yes, that's what he says on the front of the machine, brewed one cup at a time. See, yeah, we didn't believe that. Today, vending is a very successful industry, but they have a hurdle to get over in order to progress. The problem we have is a vending machine has got to become identified as a destination in its own right, not a last resort source. Ah, hell, everything's closed. I got to go to the damn vending machine. So this is the present problem. Fortunately, the vending industry has hired some very smart people to advance vending machine technology. My name is Michael Casavetta. I'm a、uh, emeritus professor from Michigan State University. Dr. Casavetta has been at the leading edge of vending machine technology since 1999. One of the first issues he worked on was the creation of cashless vending machines. So he is part of the reason why you can now use your credit card or debit card to buy things at vending machines. Well, one thing we're doing is trying to move forward with digital media. In other words,、uh, what you're used to seeing is a vending machine with a glass front, and the thought was always that the consumer had to be able to see the product in the machine in order to have confidence that the product was there, and also maybe try to see what the expiration date, if there was such a thing, on the product. What's happening now with the nutritional disclosure acts? And the calorie disclosure acts of 2016.、Uh, by December 1st, consumers will need to know the calorie content of products prior to making a, a purchase. And so, what vending companies are doing now is putting small video screens, usually seven-inch or larger video screens, on a machine that would allow the consumer to enter the row and column specifications, for example, in a vending machine. And the manufacturer's panel, like you would see on the product, would be dispensed or displayed. On the video screen. This way, the consumer has information prior to making an informed decision about whether they want to purchase the product or not. Some of the machines in the market called、uh, there's one called DigiTouch, D-I-J-I, Touch, which is a machine that the entire front of the machine is a 42-inch television screen on its side. So, in other words, the front of the machine is not a glass front machine, but it's a digital media platform that allows you to run commercials, advertisements. Allows someone to touch the product. For example, it's a touchscreen. It allows a part, person to touch the product, and when you do that, it actually flips the package over, and allows you to see the back panel.、Uh, at the same time, you can use your finger and rotate the product just by spinning it, just as if it was a, a cold drink. For example, you can move your finger on the screen from left to right. It will actually spin the bottle. So, some more entertain. What we're trying to do is get a、uh, enhance the consumer interface, make it a little bit more of an experience. Make it a little bit more fun. 
No one quite knows where these are going, but they're very expensive. But the feeling is that it will be possible for somebody to find a way to put them out and subsidize the price to the operator with the revenue from the advertising potential that the video screens have. Uh, will this have a, a, a role to play in vending food? I think it would be it could be a game changer if they do it right. If you haven't already seen one of these vending machines with digital displays, you will in the coming years. Vending machines are becoming more interactive and more fun. So every time I go to the movie theater at Metrotown Mall, I use the big Coca-Cola vending machine that lets you pick and mix any flavor in the Coca-Cola repertoire. And there's actually a lineup most of the time. So it's really a vending machine that's become that destination vending machine rather than a last resort, just like we were talking about earlier. Do you know what I'm talking about? I have no idea. I've never seen what you're talking about, but it sounds interesting. Have you been to the movie theater at Metro? No. I'm cheap. I don't go out to the movies. movies. (laughs) I wait for them to come out on Netflix. I will go to any Pixar movie that comes out. Okay, well, Pixar is a special special one. When I go to vending machines, it's usually... For me, it's still an act of desperation, usually. (laughs) um, Or a lack of willpower. Either or. And it's usually a chocolate bar of some sort, a Snickers or a Butterfinger or something. I actually don't use vending machines for food anymore, just to buy drinks all the time. Oh. But when I was younger, uh, I had a ritual. (laughs) A ritual? Um, We used to have swim practice all the time when I was around seven. And every single time I finished swim practice, I would go to the vending machine in the lobby and I'd pick either a Mrs. Fields cookie or a bag of hickory sticks. Mm. And that was my ritual. I had to get one of those two things every time. Yeah, for me it would be Snickers, Butterfinger, or uh, Cheetos. But now I try to stick to granola bars if I have to eat something out of a vending machine. That sounds really desperate. But there's chocolate chips in it, so it's a little sweet. Okay, but you're still having... Well, you know, sometimes you're running late for a meeting and you have exactly two minutes to grab food that you can stuff in your face before the meeting starts. Actually, I was um, talking to, you know, one of these vending machine experts and he was telling me how uh, in Japan, you know how they have very many vending machines in Japan and they sell everything? That vending machines were popular, you know, of course, because there's not a lot of space, but also because... People are so busy, but at the same time, when they go into shops, there's this whole thing where you have to, the shop owner greets you, and you greet them back, and it takes time, whereas a vending machine, they don't have to do that, so you just grab whatever you need to buy, and, you know, there, it's not just, like, snacks, it's, like, all kinds of foods and all kinds of products, mm-hmm. and and then you go off, you run off to work. It's a good solution to a... Uh... <laughs> A problem of etiquette when you don't have enough time for it. So we've got food buff mail. This one is from Jennifer of California. Fakri, do you want to read this one? Sure. Hi, ladies. I adore your podcast. I made sure to download a bunch of them so I could binge listen before my botany research trip to Belize the other week. It was fun to roam around the jungle and listen, especially since my main portion of research is the medicinal qualities of Theobroma cacao. 
cacao. Theobroma cacao. Cacao. Hold on. Cacao. You got it. That sounds actually a lot like the yoga position cacao. Oh, cacao. Okay. I'm going to say it again one more time. Yeah. Cacao. I am a botanist in Half Moon Bay, California. If you ever want to chat or need info on medicinal herbs, I'm your gal. Cheers, Jen. I love this letter because how cool is that, that she's roaming around the jungle listening to food nonfiction? It's great. And I especially love that she's looking into cacao products. (laughs) Such a cool research. I wish that was what our research was like. (laughs) <laughs> like exactly. actually going into the jungle yeah. as opposed to spending all day on a computer like I do now. Exactly. It's nothing like what we do. Yeah. Uh, well, Jen, we will definitely be taking you up on that offer later. And thank you for the mail. We appreciate it. So Food Buffs, if you want to write in to us too, our email is feedback at foodnonfiction.com. If you haven't gotten a chance yet, please review us on iTunes. It really helps us with our rankings. Bye, Food Buffs. Have a great week.